I held still, she said. Kirby Morell pretended to be dead in order to survive a knife attack on the Appalachian Trail. She had just witnessed a friend being stabbed to death by the same killer. She then had to hike six miles, or ten kilometers, through the dark to find help. She was bleeding profusely, unable to use one of her arms. She tried to use duct tape to patch her injured leg, which kept spurting blood, but there was too much. This is Twisted Travel and True Crime. I'm your host, Sandy. Welcome aboard, and thanks for listening. Today we have a bit more wave action in the background. Listen closely for those soothing sounds. Today I'm going to take you to the Appalachian Trail. This trail is a walking trail and hiking trail that goes through 14 different states. It's the largest, longest running volunteer conservation project in the world. There are 31 clubs that do everything from maintaining the existing trails to painting directional signs, rerouting, and building shelters. The elevation gain and loss while hiking the entire Appalachian Trail is the equivalent of climbing Mount Everest 16 times. I believe it might be for this reason that less than 15,000 people have actually completed the entirety of the trail. The trail will take you by the only town in America to ever execute an elephant, and they did it by hanging. Apparently, a five-ton elephant known as Murderous Mary from the Sparks Brothers Circus was executed in front of a crowd of 2,500 people. She was hung by her neck from a crane. The reason for her execution is not quite clear. They believe that she was accused of killing a man and people were demanding justice. You're much more likely to come across bears than elephants on this trail, and even more likely, the stealthiest and most unpredictable predator of all, man. Hikers who are determined to walk the Appalachian Trail are quick to become an extended family. They group together in order to trade gossip, commiserate with each other, treat each other's wounds such as blisters, poison ivy, and scratches. They often share provisions along the 2,190 miles of pathway stretching between Georgia and Maine. Along the way, hikers fill in logbooks, telling of how their day went and things to be watchful for as future hikers follow the trail. In April 2019, strange logs started appearing. They described a disheveled 30-year-old man who was hiking the trail in North Carolina. He was acting irrationally and was wearing a heavy winter coat and knit cap instead of shorts and a t-shirt that were much more familiar on the trail that time of year. When he reached Damascus, Virginia, the symbolic heart of the trail, the town's trail angels, who are people who regularly help hikers with gifts of food and other necessities, tried to help him too. Some of the locals in the area tried to speak to him to tell him that maybe he should get off the trail. They even offered to buy him a bus ticket to anywhere he wanted to go. The man's name was James Jordan, but he used the trail name Sovereign. He was originally from Massachusetts, and he did take the angels up on their bus ticket, but he only traveled a short distance before getting off the bus or perhaps being kicked off the bus. Unfortunately, a week later, he would wreak havoc on some hikers who were innocently enjoying the trail. To tell the story a bit better, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about James Jordan. 
He was a well-known hiker in parts of the Appalachian Trail. He was active on social media for several years and posted videos of himself singing and strumming guitar. He would sit around fire pits, partying with friends in the woods, smiling and spending time with his beloved dog, Felicia. Some of his posts were inviting. He would ask if anyone wanted to get breakfast on him, or he would ask if anyone wanted to go on a nature walk. Another man wrote that he met James two years ago when in Florida, where they both attended a rainbow gathering. This is an event where fellow travelers congregate together and talk about and plan their upcoming hikes. This man stated that he thought James was full of smiles and seemed to be very helpful. He helped with setting up camp and cooking food. He loved to play music and loved his dog very much. Besides the constant jamming of the same song, he seemed to be an alright guy. That man didn't see Jordan again until nearly two years later. This time he said that Jordan seemed a bit off. He wasn't violent, at least not in the man's presence. Strange maybe, but not violent. The man thought that perhaps James was under the influence of drugs or alcohol, or perhaps he was partying too hard. He seemed to be a bit of a loner, as many hikers are. James Jordan's demeanor seemed to become more aggressive as time went on. In January of 2018, he got into an argument with a person who had the nickname Squid. James confronted Squid at a fire and then out of nowhere attacked him and threw him into the fire. Squid suffered burns to his face, neck, arms, and legs. Other hikers had to subdue James and the whole time he was described as screaming and ranting with a Bostonian or New England accent. The hikers said they had never heard him speak with an accent at any other time, but he would do it when he got angry. His rants also never really made sense. They were gibberish nonsense until he became calm once again. As the year continued on, he became quieter, more distant, and more argumentative. One of Jordan's close friends said that he believed James was mentally ill. He was an unstable man with a lot of emotional issues. He probably should have been medicated, but chose not to be. Some of the social media posts James shared said that he was, quote, looking for crew, shutting down folks that deserve it. His bad attitude and threats finally pushed hikers to make complaints. On April 25, 2019, the man was arrested on the Tennessee-North Carolina border. He had been threatening to kill his dog unless other campers gave him food. The authorities were not able to press serious charges because the hikers who were threatened didn't want to leave the trail and go to court. He was released on probation at the end of April and ordered by a judge to stay away from the trail, but that didn't keep him away. About a week later, he wrote a Facebook post that seemed to be an indicator of his mental state. He said, quote, I'm the captain of the hit squad. I'm the one leader of the get them squad. Only three days later, he would attack hikers on a trail in Virginia. Kirby Morell would suffer nine stab wounds and 40 individual lacerations in the attack. She would require about 50 staples and 10 sutures across her face. She quoted saying, I look like Scarface now. Kirby was an athlete. She went to the University of New Brunswick where she played rugby and was celebrated for her off-the-charts tackling. She always loved staying active and healthy, and more recently, for close to a decade, she had dreamed of another physical achievement. She wanted to hike the Appalachian Trail. She planned on starting in Springer Mountain in Georgia, 
and hiking all the way to Mount Katahdin in Maine. Only about one of four hikers who set out to cover the distance will actually reach the end. After a tedious amount of training and planning, she flew from Halifax to Atlanta to begin the hike. She had just finished defending her Master of Science thesis, and this was part of her celebration. She planned to start the trail in March, and if all went well, she would be in Maine by fall. Unfortunately, shortly after she started, her life would be changed forever. An attack by a knife-wielding hiker would leave one of her companion hikers dead, and Kirby would be gravely injured and fighting for her life. Many people in the hiking community used her story of determination, fortitude, and survival to inspire them to keep going and to finish what they began. In May of that year, an app that was being used by hikers had been buzzing with talk of another hiker. He'd been threatening people on the trail. Warnings and descriptions of the man and his adorable dog had been posted. By May 10th, Kirby was just over a quarter of the way through the hike, and everything was going well. The only negative was that she had lost some of her food due to a scavenging bear. Her plan was to stop at a restaurant because she spoke to another hiker, who was going to meet her there with a bag of new food. When she was at the restaurant, she saw the hiker that she now refers to as the crazy guy with the knife. He was walking down the road with his dog. She felt uncomfortable enough about him that she had left a note at the register of the restaurant to tell other people that he was around. She thought that her best bet was to get ahead of him and to continue on without having to see him again. She hiked throughout the day, enjoying the path, the beauty of the scenery, the sound of the birds singing, and the fresh air. She found companions at a campsite that evening. There she talked with a man named Ron Sanchez, who she had met days earlier, around the time that her food had been, had been stolen by the bear that I have nicknamed Yogi. Ron was 43 years old and a combat engineer, who, after returning from his third tour in Iraq, described himself as being in a dark place. He grew up in Garden Grove, California. Once in Iraq, Sanchez suffered injuries to his knees and back and witnessed casualties in his unit, including some of his closest friends. In 2011, he was discharged with PTSD and major depression after being in the military for 17 years. He was trying to acclimate to his life in Oklahoma City, but unexpected noises frightened him, and he would hold up in his apartment for days at a stretch. Sometimes he only went out for groceries, and he'd go out late at night so he wouldn't have to interact with anyone. At that time in his life, weeks of isolation became months, and months became a year. He fell deeper and deeper into depression. Eventually, he knew he needed help. He made his way to the Oklahoma Department for Veterans Affairs, and therapists helped him name what was going on inside his brain. They gave him techniques to make it easier for him to re-engage in his life. With their encouragement, he began walking. It began as just one block, and then it became two, and then a mile, and then two. Eventually, he is walking 20 or more miles a day around Oklahoma City. He finally began to feel better. Then he began to change the way he ate. Ron joined a local hiking group called Meetup. He always loved the outdoors and thought that this hiking group would open a new world for him. 
He became an enthusiastic regular and began leading the trips. People who met him said he was one of the most wonderful and caring people out there. He always had a positive attitude and was very sweet and easy to talk to. He would be the one to cheer the others along. He met a woman named Brenda Kelly there. She was worried that her sleeping bag wouldn't be warm enough, and he helped comfort her by bringing her a stack of hand warmers. From that point forward, she was attracted to Ron. They went on their first date a couple weeks later and began seeing each other regularly. She said he was the best boyfriend, and she couldn't believe how lucky she was that they were together. As the relationship developed, Ron became increasingly interested in the idea of hiking the Appalachian Trail. Brenda had made the attempt in 2002 and encouraged him to do it. Ron began watching videos and drying his own food, trying his own fruits and vegetables to see what would pack well and what would work for him on a long hike. He wanted to take his time when he hiked the trail because he appreciated the solitude and the space to think. Just after the new year, Ron and Brenda packed up their dog and traveled to Springer Mountain, Georgia to begin the hike. Brenda Kelly spent one last night alone with him and then returned to Oklahoma. Ron began his walk up the trail and the weather was miserable for the first couple of weeks. He sent Brenda photos of trees covered in ice and complained that it was hard going because the conditions were harsher than he imagined. But that harshness is what he wanted to find and was thankful he got to experience it. Hikers often pick a nickname to keep on the trail and Ron chose to be called Engineer. However, as time was spent on the trail, he met a father-daughter duo and shared with them his story of his time in Iraq. They nicknamed him Stronghold. This embarrassed Ron, but the other hikers liked it, and the name stuck. In early March, his knee began to bother him, so he took a break and stayed in a hostel. He was offered free board in exchange for work. He spent two weeks there resting and getting his knee back on track. The owner of the hostel said that Ron was the sweetest, most compassionate hiker he had ever met on the trail. He said, quote, rarely have I met a more genuine person. He was a good soul. Ron kept moving and covered about 466 miles before he decided to call it quits in mid-April. He called Brenda and told her he needed to come home. She came quickly to pick him up, but only five days after being home, he decided he had to go back and finish. He made the trip back to Damascus, Virginia in early May. He spent a night or two in the hostel and then teamed up with a few other hikers to get back on the trail. After a short time, Ron decided he was done with shelters and he wanted to start sleeping in his tent again. The following day was gorgeous and sunny and temperatures were in the 70s by then. Stronghold had made his way to the Jefferson National Forest. He texted Brenda talking to her about the bird he'd seen that morning and sent her photos of wildflowers. His girlfriend said that he was so happy to be back on the trail. Everything seemed greener and brighter as spring had brought the trail to life. Although it's not crystal clear what happened later that night, what we do know is that James Jordan began harassing Ron and the small group of backpackers he had met up with that day. Jordan threatened the group after they had retired to their tents. He was threatening that he would pour gasoline on their tents and burn them to death. Ron Sanchez and Kirby Morrell and two others decided the best thing was to pack up and move somewhere else. It was after midnight at this time. 
It was as they were packing their gear that Jordan approached them holding a knife in his hand. Ron managed to send out an emergency SOS call before the attack escalated. Two of the hikers ran and James Jordan chased them. He returned a short time later. Ron confronted him and was stabbed. After stabbing Ron and knocking him to the ground, James Jordan turned his attention to Kirby. She said, quote, I was pinned because I had packed up and was trying to get out of there with all the things I had with me. I had a 30-something pound backpack on my back, and when he came at me, he came at my front, so I fell on my back like a turtle, and he was on top of me, and there was nothing I could do. It was pitch black in the middle of the woods, and she believes that at one point her attacker thought she was dead. He had fallen on top of her and switched from stabbing her to beating her on the side of her head. So she held her breath and held still, and eventually he stopped. He stood up and stood over her for a very long time. She said she tried not to breathe. Eventually he left, and she was able to get up and decided to head south along the trail to where she knew other hikers would be. Their camp was about six miles away. She didn't realize the extent of her injuries because of the amount of adrenaline coursing through her veins. She barely felt the injuries. Instead, she said she felt a general feeling of badness, like something was wrong. She said, I knew immediately my right arm didn't work. My left arm wasn't working very well at all. And after I got up and started moving, every time I took a step, there was blood spurting from my leg. She walked as quickly as she could, with blood dripping down her face. After she had walked about half a mile, she used duct tape to try to patch her leg, but there was too much blood, and only one of her arms was working, so the blood-soaked tape just fell to the ground. She said, and I find this a bit funny, that she felt a tinge of guilt because the hiker's credo is to leave the trail as they found it. I'm absolutely positive that Mother Nature and the other hikers would forgive her this one time. Luckily, she came into contact with two hikers who helped her with the last part of her journey. It took her about three hours to reach the next camp where they were able to call 911 and receive assistance. She was flown to a hospital in Tennessee. There, they treated her injuries, and when she was finally able to make a statement, she said that she luckily was spared survivor's guilt. She said, I actually believe I made the best decision I could. I might not be happy with the results because we lost Ron. That's the hardest part for me because he was a great guy. But I honestly don't think I could have helped him any more than I did. Unfortunately, Ron's wounds were fatal. He died in the early morning hours of Saturday, May 11th. He left behind a grieving family in California friends across the country and the trail community he had grown to love and who loved him dearly. Kirby's recovery has been slow and involved painful physical therapy exercises and weightlifting to restore feeling and use of her arms. Even though she's still uncomfortable, she was back on the Appalachian Trail in September, just for the day. She promised hikers she'd been traveling with that they would climb the final mountain together. She said, I started the trail and I finished the trail. I just skipped a big part in the middle. She fought back tears as she reached the peak. James Jordan is currently in jail and awaiting sentencing 
which was pushed back due to COVID. He originally pleaded insanity, but was found competent to stand trial. He will be facing murder charges, attempted murder, and three charges of assault with a deadly weapon. Between three and 4,000 hikers attempt to hike the trail each year. All things considered, the hike is quite safe. But this is not the only murder on the Appalachian Trail. There's a pretty good chance you'll be hearing more about murders on the Appalachian Trail in the future. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed today's podcast and you would like to become a monetary supporter of the podcast, you can do so, and it would be greatly appreciated. There is a link that will show you how to do so in the episode description. That's also where you will find my resources for today's show. Thank you all so much, those of you who have subscribed to the podcast and to those of you who have written a wonderful review or given us a nice rating. Thank you so much. I would like to read one review to you before closing out today. This review is from the host of Coffee and Cases podcast. She says, as a connoisseur of all things true crime, it's always nice to hear a podcast with such strong writing and storytelling. This podcast will keep you interested and entertained. Keep up the great work. Thank you, Coffee and Cases. And to all of you listeners out there, I'd like to wish you fair winds and following seas.